10, Acts chapter 10, it is kind of a shame. The old time preacher used to preach against people acting like brute beasts and acting like the animals. And in our day, we're saying, uh, can we get back to at least down like the animals? Because <laughs> we're into stuff animal wouldn't even do. All right, Acts chapter 10. I'll have to thank you a minute as the word stop because I could read the whole chapter, but that'd just take too long. Acts chapter 10, verse 1. There was a certain man in Caesarea. This is the uh, Roman capital of the province of Judea, there around <coughs> Jerusalem. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, the devout man, and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God all way. He saw in a vision, evidently, about the ninth hour of the day, an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodgeth with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. All right now, uh, an angel of God wants you to obey what somebody comes up and tells you to do. We live in a day where there is a throwing off of authority. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm an American. I believe in freedom, and I don't want our government overstepping its bounds. And uh, you know my teaching on these things, and we've got pictures of the Baptists that uh, fought for our religious freedom on our walls even as we speak. I believe in these things strongly. But don't ever think that your civil and religious liberty gives you the right to just throw off all authority either. Amen. Don't have that misunderstanding. When uh, the Lord sends you somebody to preach to you, He's telling you what you need to do. Verse 7, And when the angel which spake unto Cornelius was departed, he called two of his household servants and an devout soldier of them that waited on him continually. And when he had declared all these things unto them, he sent them to Joppa. On the morrow, as they went on their journey and drew nigh unto the city, Peter went up upon the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. And he became very hungry and would have eaten. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven open, and a certain vessel descending unto him, as it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners, and let down to the earth, wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth, and wild beasts, and creeping things, and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice spake unto him again the second time, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. So Cornelius saw a vision. And here we have Peter seeing a vision. Remember your New Testament is not finished. All they have is the Old Testament at this point. Or maybe some beginnings of the New Testament. But it certainly wasn't compiled. We don't know that they had access to any of it yet. And uh, so the Lord shows up and says, Alright, now some things are about to change. Verse 16, this was done thrice, and the vessel was received up again into heaven. 
Now while Peter doubted in himself what this vision which he had seen should mean, behold, the men which were sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate, and called and asked whether Simon, which was surnamed Peter, were lodged there. So Peter's sitting here thinking about this. Now, what's going on? He says in the Old Testament, I can't eat these unclean animals. And yet I just saw a vision and pretty clearly heard God say, you can go ahead and eat them because I've cleansed them. And what I've cleansed, you can't call common. So he's sitting there thinking, what in the world does this mean? Of course, we have the Pauline epistles and we know that nothing is to be refused if it's sanctified with the word of God in prayer. But Peter didn't know that yet. Verse 19, while Peter thought on the vision, the Spirit said unto him, Behold, three men seek thee. Arise, therefore, and get thee down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men which were sent unto him from Cornelius and said, Behold, I am he whom ye seek. What is the cause wherefore ye are come? And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, and one that feareth God, and of good report among all the nation of the Jews, was warned from God by an holy angel to send for thee into his house and to hear words of thee. Then called he them in and lodged them. And on the morrow, Peter went away with them, and certain brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And the morrow after, they entered into Caesarea. There's Caesarea again. And Cornelius waited for them and had called together his kinsmen and near friends. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Here's a man that's being very sincere, but he knows that uh, God has obviously sent this man, and he lifts him up a little higher than he should and actually gets down to worship him. And we know we shouldn't worship any man, even even one that the Lord sent. We worship the Lord. But Cornelius, making an honest mistake here, he doesn't know. There's a lot of things he doesn't realize yet. Verse uh, 26, but Peter took him up saying, stand up. I myself also am a man. Notice Peter doesn't say, well, I don't want to offend him. You know, there's some things he doesn't know. No, Peter says, oh, we, can, we can be plain about this. We can, we can tell what we know and what we believe. Verse 27, and as he talked with him, he went in and found many that were come together. And he said unto them, ye know how that it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come unto one of another nation. But God hath showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. So the Lord gave him a vision of dirty animals. But Peter is understanding that what he's referring to is dirty men. That's a good picture of dirt. Let me tell you something, folks. We have no business calling people dirty people as dirty as we are ourselves. Amen. Now they are dirty, but they're no dirtier than us. It's just in different categories sometimes. Verse 29, Therefore came I unto you without gainsaying, as soon as I was sent for. I asked therefore for what intent ye have sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour, And at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. So it says he was praying, and it adds the detail that we didn't get earlier in the chapter, that he was fasting. Did you know the new Bibles get rid of that word fasting? Isn't that interesting? God help us. There's a reason this Bible has fasting in there. That'll help you. 
Verse 31, And said, Cornelius, thy prayer is heard, and thine alms are had in remembrance in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa, and call hither Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodged in the house of one Simon a tanner by the seaside, who, when he cometh, shall speak unto thee. Immediately, therefore, I sent to thee, and thou hast well done that thou art come. Now, therefore, are we all here present before God to hear all things that are commanded thee of God? Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. A gospel that doesn't include Jesus as Lord is incomplete. Amen. Peter preaches it. Yes. Verse 37, That word I say ye know, which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even to us who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. His resurrection is absolutely essential. They ate and drank. Let me tell you something. If you claim you saw a ghost, let me tell you what most people don't see. They don't see that ghost eating and drinking. Amen. And the cookie's actually gone. Amen. You know how we try to convince our kids that Santa Claus came? We have daddy go eat the, eat the cookies and drink the milk. Right. That's right. <laughs> when the food is actually gone, that was not just a ghost, was it? Verse 42, And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of of quick and dead. A gospel that doesn't include your judgment is an incomplete gospel. He's right here in it. He's Lord and he's judge. But thank God he's also Savior. Yes. Verse 43, To him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. And I'll stop there. I've read the whole chapter, haven't I? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chance to read and study your word. And I pray you help us to understand some things about a man that got your attention. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The title of our message this morning is A Man Who Got God's Attention. Let me tell you something. It'll do you good to get... God's attention. Here was Cornelius living, and God took note of him and said, i got to get the gospel to this man. I notice what he's doing. And if he had to do a supernatural act and send an angel, he did it. Now, you being the top 1% of men, if you're a man like Cornelius, and he's not even saved. Sometimes I'm ashamed that the saved men of this country are not what some of the lost men are. Amen. But in this case, he gets it. He gets it, and he gets it real soon. All right, now he's in a place called Caesarea. Caesarea is known for preaching. Just a couple pages back, 
chapter 8, verse 40, it says, Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. You want to be in a place where God is moving? You go to a place where there's preaching of the Word of God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. In these last days, God has manifested His Word through preaching, the Bible says. You go to a place where there's preaching, and you go to a place where there's the power of God. Yes, especially preaching the gospel. So that's one thing it was known for. Another thing it was known for is a bunch of Christians hung out there. Christians tend to hang out places where there is preaching of the Word of God. There's something wrong when somebody claims they're a Christian, and they don't care anything about preaching. That's where the Lord shows up. Amen. In churches, the candlesticks. Jesus is walking in the middle of the candlesticks. Where two or three are gathered in my name, they're mine in the midst of him. If you're a Christian, you love the Lord, you like to go where he is, and he tends to go to places where there's preaching. Amen. Uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 30, which when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. When they wanted the Apostle Paul to get in with them, they brought him to Caesarea. That's where a bunch of Christians were. Uh, look back at chapter, still in the book of Acts, all the way to chapter 21. Acts 21, Philip shows up again. It says, And the next day we that were of Paul's company departed and came unto Caesarea. And we entered into the house of Philip the evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. And the same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. So Philip, we know this about him, he has four daughters who are virgins, poor thing. Four things. I mean, what's the chances he has four daughters and not one of them wanting to get married? That's all I'm saying. But uh, sure enough, he has influence. He has influence with his family. He has influence in the town. Speaking of girls having a having a gift of prophecy, one time Virginia was needing to go back one end of the house and brush her teeth or something. She said, "Dad, I'm scared." Made me go back there with her. So as I went back there, I said, Oh, monster, please don't eat her when she goes back there to brush her teeth. And I heard her say under the breath, under her breath as we were walking back there, There must be something wrong with you. <laughs> <laughs> so she has the gift of prophecy. I don't make it that obvious, do I? All right, so that was Caesarea. All right, the second thing I see in chapter 10 is not just Caesarea, but I see a centurion. Uh, one of the first things I think of when I think of a centurion is I think of somebody that is disciplined. The Bible has a lot of real good things to say about soldiers and centurions and people that have moved up the ranks in the military. And don't misunderstand, I am not defending a lot of dirty stuff that the militaries have done over the years. Oh, yeah. They've killed a lot of innocent people. They've sacked cities and raped people and assaulted them and God knows what. I'm not in favor of a lot of things that a lot of dirty armies have done, but I, I will give the military this. They have taught discipline. And one reason that the Lord likens Christians to soldiers is we're supposed to be disciplined, and God help us, we're not near enough. And that starts with me. But he's a centurion, he's disciplined. And when I say discipline, here's the main thing I mean. He could tell himself no. Got a lot of Christians that are real good at telling everybody else, no, you can't do that. No, you can't say that. No, you can't listen to that. No, you can't look at that. No, you can't wear that. And it has its place, but how good are we at telling ourselves, yes. no, you can't eat that. No, yeah. you can't drink that. No, you can't spend your money on that. No, you can't spend your time on that. A lot of times the place we're missing our discipline is telling ourselves no. 
So when I say he was disciplined, I mean he told himself to tell you something else about somebody that's a centurion. He's taking some time to move up the ranks. Usually it means you're disciplined and you stay disciplined for a period of time. Perseverance. And another thing I think of when I think of somebody that's moved up the ranks in the military, they had no trouble with submission to authority. You know how you're never going to get anywhere in the Christian life? When you have trouble with authority. Amen. If, oh, yeah. if, if you're even saved, and not everybody claims to be saved, especially here in the Bible, but it really is. I'm not trying to make anybody doubt their salvation, but there needs to be a time you trusted the Lord Jesus as your Savior, not just based it on the fact that, well, Grandma was a Christian, but not born into a Christian family. What not born into a Christian nation? Don't I sit on a church pew at Easter and Christmas? No, there needs to be a time you receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. But if you are saved, one thing that will hinder you from ever growing is a lack of submission to authority. Everybody says, uh, the old saying I've heard often is, everything rises or falls on leadership. What a messed up saying. <laughs> Who is the leader of the church? The Lord Jesus. You got any problem with him? Then how come nobody's obeying him? Some of the best Christians I've ever heard in my life give this testimony. I fail the Lord every day. What's the problem? They're not submitted to their authority. The problem is not that they don't, we don't have a good leader. We have the perfect leader. We just can't get anybody to obey him. Amen. There's the problem. Uh, you know what will help you in your Christian life? For you to get better and better at submission yes. to authority. Yes. You know why you'll not grow ever even a little bit? When you have trouble with submission to authority. All right. Uh, Caesarea, centurion. All right. Now I see the spiritual things about this man. In verse 2, uh, it says he's a devout man that feared God uh, with all his house and prayed to God all way. Devout. I looked up that word. It means yielding a solemn and reverential attention to God in religious exercises, particularly in prayer. So there is one exercise that outdoes all the other that tells how devout you are. According to that definition, and it's prayer. There's one thing that Bible-believing Baptists have failed in recent years. It's prayer. Amen. Now, boy, they can give you the answer to a lot of doctrinal things, and they can prove they're right from the Scripture. And we need to do that. There is some importance in that. But, boy, where are the prayer meetings? Where is the sweet hour of prayer? When's the last time a Bible-believing Baptist had a sweet hour of prayer? Devout. All right, secondly, fear God. Hey, did you know the fear of God is a great Bible doctrine? Yes, it is. No wonder the scholars attack it and say, well, it's a fatherly respect or a reverential trust. No, sir. When you face an almighty God, you will fall at his feet like a dead man. Even the apostle John, who was close to the Lord Jesus and lay on his bosom at the Last Supper, my goodness, even the Apostle John, when he saw him, fell at his feet. Amen. Daniel, who had an excellent spirit and is one of the great characters of the whole Bible, fell when he saw him. Amen. The fear of God is a great Bible doctrine. He was this man was devout. 
He was a soldier. He didn't fear many people, but he knew enough to fear God. How do you feel about God? How come you're not scared to do some of the things you're doing? That's enough to put us all on the altar, isn't it? Yes. Fear God, and then what I've already referred to a little bit, prayed to God always. There are plenty of Christians that are not truly devout, do not fear God, or at least not very much, and certainly don't pray to God always. The Bible says pray without ceasing. The Bible says continuing instant in prayer. The Bible says praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. It's not all fleshy requests. Some of it is spiritual. It's the way it should be. So we've seen Caesarea. We've seen the centurion. We've seen the spiritual. Now let's look at the personal. Also in verse 2. It says he was a devout man and one that feared God with all his house. And gave, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God all way. So in his personal life, he was family-oriented. He feared God with all his house. He pointed his house toward God and toward decent living. Plenty of Christians don't measure up to this lost man in that very area. Not only that, he was generous. It says he gave much alms to the people. Back here in uh, chapter 9 and verse 36, it says, Now there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. One of the great Christian ladies in the book of Acts was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. She did a lot of them, filled up with them. Uh, Luke chapter 7. I'll read to you from Luke chapter 7. And sure enough, here's another centurion. It's greatly bragged on. And look what it said about him. Luke chapter 7, verse 4. And when they came to Jesus, and uh, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. So there were some centurions that loved these Jews. One of them here, and one of them back in Luke chapter 7, built a synagogue for him. So, personally, this man was family-oriented, this man was generous, gave much alms to the people, and he had influence with others. Look at verse 24. And the morrow after, they entered into Caesarea, and Cornelius waited for them, and had called together his kinsmen and near friends. Now, how many of us Christians can measure up to that? If somebody came to give, a, to give a gospel talk at our house, how many of our kinsmen and near friends could we get there? How many would actually show up? I'm ashamed. Cornelius beats me. Cornelius was surreal that he had influence. And the people that were close enough to him as to be his kinsmen and near friends, when he brought the word of God, they showed up. As much Christian daddies can't get their kids anywhere. Can't get their wife anywhere. Have no influence. What's the matter? Well, don't get me wrong. We're, we're all human, and some of it's them. But some of it's us. We're not perfect either. He influenced others. That's his personal life. All right, but the next thing I want to point out about him is verse 3 and 4. He got God's attention. He not only had all these other things going for him, 
God Almighty up in heaven noticed him. He sent him an angel. Wouldn't it be great to be such a great man that God Almighty, if there wasn't a human being around to get a message to you, said, I'm going to get an angel. You go get a man that can preach the gospel to you. How interesting that he didn't just let the angel preach it. For whatever reason, it is God's plan for you and me to preach the gospel to people. Apparently, he doesn't let angels do it in the church age. How good are we at preaching the gospel? If we don't do it ourselves, who are we supporting that does? He sent an angel, and he did it because of his prayers. Because it said that he was praying, and God came into him and said, Cornelius. And his prayers meant business. You know how I know they meant business? Because it says in verse 30, he was fasting as he prayed. Now, buddy, when you put the food down, you mean business. When's the last time you were so tore up about getting a hold of God for something that you didn't eat for an extended period of time because you were tore up and burdened about the thing? When's the last time you couldn't sleep Till you got a hold of God about something. When you give up your food and you give up your sleep to get a hold of God, let me tell you something, he notices that because he says, wow, they mean business. Because of his prayers, including fasting, also because of his alms, he gave much alms to the people. Verse 4 says, and when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? And he said unto him, thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. Hey, Christian, you want to get notice to God? Let me tell you something. Start sending him prayers and start doing some alms. Start doing some good things. Maybe that cost you some money. If you get a chance to buy some gospel tracts, buy them. God will notice. You get a chance to support a missionary, support him. God will notice and spend, like the old song says, an hour in prayer. Say, I just ain't got an hour. Carve one out. I got things I got to take care of. Do it while they're all asleep. If you'll put an hour of prayer in with God and you'll put up some alms, let me tell you something. Business will pick up in your life. God notices you're doing without food. God notices you're doing without sleep. And don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to get anybody unhealthy, okay? I'm not saying do it every night. But once in a while, have something that means enough to you, you sacrifice a little sleep, try to get a hold of God on it. You sacrifice some food to get a hold of God. You give some money to a missionary preaching the gospel in a place that isn't just saturated like we are here in the Bible Belt and watch God take notice. Has God not blessed you since you've been given to missions? I bet he has. He got God's attention because God sent him an angel. God heard him because of his prayers and because of his alms and because of his sincerity in seeking. Romans chapter 2, it says, To them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. 
But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Now that's in Romans. That's Paul. Don't misunderstand. He's not teaching works for salvation. I didn't have time to read the whole passage. Let me tell you the first good work you can ever do is receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Amen. Don't waste my time telling about your good works when you insult God by not even receiving His Son that died on that cross for you. That's your first good work is receive His gift. At, let's see, we're in Acts. Look back at chapter 8 or I'll read it to you. Verse 27. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia and eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship. The Ethiopian eunuch is another good example of a Gentile that had all those riches and had all that responsibility, and he thought it was important enough that he took off from taking care of the queen's treasures to get to Jerusalem and worship. When you mean business, God notices because so few people do. Amen. But as much as I've bragged on Cornelius, as much as I've said he's better than most saved men, and I truly believe that, he still needed a preacher. Yes. Your good works, even if you're a top 1% man, still will not save you because you can't measure up to the Lord Jesus Christ. So when the Lord sent him a message, he did not say, Cornelius, you're better than any of the Jews I've got. You're better than any of these new uh, Testament Christians that we're just getting started with. He didn't say that. He said, you go get a man to come preach to you. There's some things you need to hear. I don't care if you're a good man or a bad man. You need the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He needed a preacher to do what? And oh boy, we hate this one. To tell him what to do. You know what the Bible says in Acts chapter 8 with that Ethiopian eunuch? Philip got in the chariot with him and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I except some man should guide me? Amen. You know what even good people need? They need some guidance. And for whatever reason, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. You need to get under some preaching. Somebody needs to preach you the gospel. Maybe behind the pulpit like I'm doing. Maybe on a person-to-person -person witness. The best of all I've found is when you have some of both. When you have somebody that preaches the gospel to you publicly and somebody that preaches it to you privately. Boy, that's a real good one-two punch. That really gets it through. But he needed somebody to tell him what to do. He needed somebody to tell what God commanded him to say. Verse 33, that's his own testimony. He says at the end of verse 33, We are all here present before God to hear all things that are commanded thee of God. And what is the first thing that you need to hear to get things right between you and God? What is his outstanding characteristic? God's outstanding characteristic is His holiness. Amen. Now that's a problem to us sinful humans, isn't it? Because we're not, we're not just imperfect. We're sinners. Dirty sinners. So if His number one characteristic is holiness, and one of our main characteristics is our sinfulness, how in the world are we going to ever get together? What in the world do we have in common? 
I'll tell you what will have to happen. Somehow that sin question will have to be dealt with. What did Jesus say to the Samaritan woman? Go get your husband and bring him here. What did he hit on? Her sin. She said, uh, I have no husband. He said, yeah, you well said you have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the one you're with now ain't your husband. Of that thou saidst truly. You know what the first thing God deals with when you and him get ready to get together? Your sin. So what does Peter preach? Look at verse 43. To him give them all the prophets witness that through his name whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. You ever get feeling guilty about your sin? Let me tell you what to do. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. When you put your trust in him, he forgives those sins. Correct. Tell them how to get forgiveness of sin. So we've seen that the Caesarea, we've seen the centurion, we've seen the spiritual side, we've seen the personal side, we've seen that he got God's attention, we've seen that he still needed a preacher. Now in closing, let's say this. He received salvation. Amen. You know why he did? Because he received the preaching enthusiastically. He didn't just sit there thinking, man, the ball game's about to start. Man, I'm hungry for dinner. Oh, man, let me get out of here. He was happy to hear it because he knew it was coming from God. Now listen, I don't blame anybody that gets bored during a sermon. I am not railing on anyone. If all somebody is doing is standing up there giving you a lecture about their opinions on things, that is boring. But if you ever actually believe that that sermon is a message from God, it will get your attention. Yes. You know why some Bible-believing Baptists keep coming to church? 40 years and 50 years and in a few cases 60 years after they're saved they actually think this Bible is the word of God and somewhere where it's taught or preached they keep going because right. if God spoke it's too important to miss and to be bored with Amen, brother. but if you just think it's the teaching of them I admit you're wasting your time you may as well watch a ball game you may as well go eat fried chicken you may as well go watch a race. You may as well go watch a romance or whatever you're into. You're wasting your time. But boy, if it's the word of God, you sure better listen. Amen. You better fear. He received salvation. He received the preaching enthusiastically. He received it so enthusiastically that he brought a crowd to hear it with him. It says in verse 27, as he talked with him, he went in and found many that were come together. It wasn't two or three. You know, it wasn't his mom and his aunt and his uh, nephew. No, I mean, it was many that were come together. And he was happy to hear it. He said, Thou hast well done that thou art come, down in verse 33. Now we are, now we all here present before God to hear all things that are commanded to God. He said, We're not here for a meal, and while we're here, you go ahead and say a few words. No. He said, The whole reason we're here is to hear God's word. When we're here at Victory Baptist Church, the only reason we're here is to hear God's Word. We're wasting our time for here for anything else. Happy to hear it. And he went ahead and got active and believed. Look at verse 43. It said, While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the Word, and they of the circumcision which believed were astonished as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out 
the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, at what point in Peter's sermon did they start believing and the Holy Ghost get poured out on them? Look down at verse uh, chapter 11 and verse 15. Chapter 11, verse 15. And he, he's telling what happened here. And he says, And as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them as on us at the beginning. Peter was still in his introduction. He said, I was just beginning, and they got saved. Now, we have a little routine where we you know, preach a sermon and at the end, give the invitation. Listen, if God speaks to you, you don't have to wait for the invitation. You don't have to wait for a song. You don't have to wait to the end of the sermon. If God Almighty speaks to you, you can come and respond right when He speaks. Amen. You say, well, I might distract. I guess there's some truth to that. But let me tell you what's more important than distracting is obeying God. They believed on him when they heard, and the Holy Ghost came down on them, and the Lord didn't say, No, you didn't wait for the invitation. <laughs> Why, no. You do it when God tells you to, and the quicker the better. They believed while he was still in the intro, in the introduction. I'll tell you something else, he repented. Chapter 11 and verse 18, when this story is being told, this is what was said about it. When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted, look at it, repentance unto life. Amen. Repentance means you're going one way and you turn around and go completely the opposite Amen. direction. Don't tell me that God Almighty came into your life and nothing changed. <laughs> Baloney. He is too big and mighty and powerful for nothing to change. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. That does not mean that I'm saying you go by all my rules as soon as you get saved. Uh, newsflash, I don't even go by all my rules. <laughs> what it does mean is you are changed forever from the day God Almighty comes in your heart. Exactly in what detail, I probably can't predict. But I know this, if he shows up, he makes a difference. Amen. Amen. He repented. I'll tell you something else, he obeyed. Chapter 10, verse 48, it says, And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then prayed they him to tarry certain days. He commanded for them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. He expected once they got saved to obey. Now baptism has nothing to do with your salvation. Don't misunderstand. Amen. It's a work. And you cannot be saved by baptism. You cannot be partially saved by baptism. You cannot be kept saved by baptism. It is not part of your salvation. But I will say this. If you just got saved, and the very first thing God tells you to do, you say, no, I don't want to. That's a funny attitude for somebody who just had their eternal soul saved by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ dying for them on that horrible cross. That's a funny attitude. I don't know if I believe you or not. Don't misunderstand. It doesn't matter whether I believe you. If you got saved, you got saved, and you and God know it. Yeah. But it sure looks funny to me. <laughs> He, he didn't have any trouble commanding them to get baptized. He obeyed. I'll tell you something else. He fellowshiped with God's people. Verse 48, And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then prayed they him to tarry certain days. I'll tell you something else about somebody got saved. 
they want to be around other people that are saved. When you're saved, but you avoid all the Christians because their personality rubs you wrong and they teach something a little bit different than you do on a detail here or there, or whatever your excuse is, there's something wrong. The scriptural salvations, the Christians in the Bible, they hung out with other Christians. There was a reason there was a bunch of them in Jerusalem and God had to split them up. There's a reason a bunch of them congregated in Antioch of Syria. There's a reason there's a bunch of them here in Caesarea. They attend to get in pockets so they can fellowship with each other. He fellowshiped with God's people. He wasn't a Jew, but boy, when he got saved, he was interested in those Jews that believed because they were God's people. All right. Here was a man who got God's attention. You know what we've learned today? We've learned some lessons that make us get God's attention. God help all the saved people to measure up to the kind of man Cornelius was even before he was saved. But especially after he was saved. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you.